Amen. All right, Philippians 1, 1 to 11, God's word says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to throw out kind of one word at a time. Inflation, Ukraine, recession, COVID-19, Trump, Biden, Dobbs, Obergefell, supply chain shortage, fuel prices, Uvalde, Covenant School, Old National Bank, climate change, global persecution, North Korea, Haiti, Russia, Iran, racial tension, Middle East, China, Israel, Clinton, transgenderism. Any one of these hot button words or phrases could be at the top of the headlines at any given moment over the last few years or even the last decade or so. And any of these words could bring an anxious or angry reaction in many of you. In Paul's day, the headlines could have read like this, imprisonment, false teaching, Nero, Judaizers, circumcision, idolatry, division. Any one of these words could have brought about the same reactions to the recipients of Paul's letter. Yet in the midst of the world's bad news, Paul pins one of the most joy-filled books in all of Scripture. As Christians, we should definitely be in the, in the know on current events. But the greater question is how these current events or crises affect our outlook on life, spiritual health, and how they affect the joy that we have in the Lord, which brings us to our question for this morning. Our question is this, where is your joy? Where is your joy, Christian? Where is your joy at? Where's our joy? Jesus teaches actually in John 15 and 16 about the expectation of pressure, persecution, and problems within the world, and yet he implores his followers to not lose heart. He says, do not lose heart, because in him we have joy and joy in abundance. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Paul lives out this truth as an example for us in the letter that we have before us. The historical context of Philippians, if you don't know, is a pastor writing to a beloved church, and he's in prison. It's, it's called a prison letter of Paul. Yet from the depth of imprisonment comes one of the most joyful books in all of Scripture. You get this sense in verse 7 uh, when it says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, 
both in my imprisonment, which is where he's at in that present time, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, right? His gospel ministry, which actually, if you know the history of Paul, you know it spilled over. His gospel ministry actually spilled over into his times of imprisonment. Actually, this church was established in part by a jailer who was overseeing Paul and Silas, if you read in Acts chapter 16, I believe. The the warmth of Paul's shepherding heart is on display from from the depths of a cold, dark prison cell. The joy stems from Paul's love of God and love of people. We understand both from from his spirit-inspired words when he'll later say in Philippians chapter four, verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And as if that wasn't enough, he says, again, I will say what? Rejoice, emphasizing that word, joy. This joy stems from his connection and rootedness to Jesus as the true vine through the power of the gospel, which grants us pardon from all of our sins through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is empowered by the Spirit of God and has a deep love and partnership with God's people, the church. So that in the midst of turmoil and persecution, fear and pain, Paul can again say these words, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul's gospel-centered joy spills out and stems from first his partnership with the Philippians. It's our first point this morning. We see joy in the coalition of believers. Joy in the coalition of believers, a partnership. A coalition is a partnership or alliance of people for a combined action. They have a common cause together. Gospel partnership is a major theme of Philippians, and we begin to understand this from the outset of the letter in verses one to five. Paul and Timothy, we see partners there, right? Paul and Timothy, servants. Actually, the the literal word there is slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, we could say elders or bishops and deacons, right? So I'm gonna pause here for a second. We see here now this this church in Philippi is at this point when Paul is writing, it seems to be a well-organized and a mature Christian church. He says this, grace to you and peace, right? And where does this come from? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see unity among the uh, between the Father and the Son, which brings about Uh, the result of grace and peace in God's people. Paul says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer. Notice the emphasis, right? The totality of Paul's claim. In all my remembrance of you always and in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with what? Joy. Because of what? Your partnership, right? Your togetherness in the gospel from the first day until now. This church actually has a, has a rather remarkable background and partnership with Paul. But both in ministry around Philippi and in funding the greater mission of Paul and Timothy throughout the known world. Moreover, the, the establishment of this church stems from three of the most unlikely historical figures. We're going to walk through how this church was established it's almost like the beginning of a bad joke, right? What do a businesswoman, Lydia, a grouchy jailer, and a fortune-telling slave girl have in common? If, if this was in our context, Lydia would have been out shopping at Trader Joe's up in St. Matthew's. The jailer would be living in PRP and working at Amazon probably. 
and the fortune teller girl would be strolling down Bartstown Road in the Highlands, heckling all of the uh, chai latte sipping hippies out in that area, right? A diverse group of people coming together by the reconciling power of the gospel. These three became the first members of this church now that Paul is writing to, as told in Acts chapter 16. You can go back. What's amazing is what happens right before that. Uh, Paul is going and preaching, and and the Spirit moves within him to, to move on from that area, and as a result of that, he ends up in Philippi, preaching the gospel to Lydia. Then it spills out to the slave girl. Then it spills out to the jailer. See, the power of the gospel and the obedience of Paul and the discernment that Paul has in listening to the Spirit in leading him. And, they, and they, we see also another partner in this instance, a, a partner named Silas, which was imprisoned with Paul before the establishment of this church. And they were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. We pick up the passage now toward the end of their time in Philippi. So they've already been released from prison because God's miraculous work, his shaking of this prison. We're seeing Lydia confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, the jailer, the slave girl. And then out of that, it says this in verses 39 to 40 in Acts chapter 16. So they came and apologized to them. This is the, the government officials, right? They done messed up in this situation in dealing with Paul and Silas because Paul was actually a citizen of the Roman uh, Empire, and he shouldn't have been treated the way he was treating back, treated back in Acts chapter 16. It says this, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. It's like, okay, you guys have caused enough issues. It's time for you to go. So they went out of the prison, and what do they do? They go and visit Lydia real quick, right? We're going to go say hi to our church before we depart and leave. And when they had seen the brothers, meaning the, the congregation gathered together, they encouraged them and departed. It was time for them to be on their way. A church that is established through the power of the gospel preached first to Lydia, then to the fortune-telling slave girl, then to the jailer. We see the response of these early converts. What do they do? They repent and they're baptized. And the spirit falls upon the hearers in Philippi. And this church is formed is a partnership that would bless Paul's ministry and other churches, it's noted at the end of Philippians, through their generous financial support, through their giving of money to the church, to the kingdom of God. Verse uh, 18 in chapter 4 says that. Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Joyful giving to the mission of God is is a distinctive aspect of this particular church. The question again, where is our joy? We find here that Paul finds joy and the Philippian church finds joy in first celebrating a partnership together, a fellowship with these Christians in the establishment, establishment of a church and also their generosity towards other churches. Okay, they were, they were mission-giving churches. Philippi was, was giving money away to support the gospel and churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And so we can learn from this. Oftentimes we miss out on joy because what's the opposite of partnership? It's isolation. Because we isolate away and we're stingy with 
the, the finances that God has given us. The Philippian church and Paul, they find joy in their togetherness, their common mission, and their generous support of the kingdom of God. Number two, where is your joy? Number two, joy. Yeah, Paul finds joy in the completion of grace. We could say the promise of the completion of grace. That the work will be finished. This really is the heart of what having faith in something is all about, right? Faith is the declaration or belief that a promise will be upheld. I believe what that person tells me that they're going to do, that they're going to bring it to completion. The, the author of Hebrews would say, the assurance of things hoped for, they will come to fruition. Paul says this, a very famous verse in, chapter, or in verse uh, six says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The completion of grace. This verse right here gives, gives me confidence that God will finish the work that he has begun in each of us. That we will persevere to the end and that we will continue to bear fruit for the cause of the gospel. God will complete his gift of grace in you. The psalmist says this in Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Family, we, we need to walk forth in confidence of our faith in the promises of Jesus. Again, that the Bible is, where is this derived from? The Bible is, we believe, the very word of God, inspired by God's spirit. The human authors were carried along by God so that every word is as God intended. And it is here that Paul gives, gives us a beautiful promise of the completion of God's grace in the true children of God. The true children of God are indeed marked by this, by the, the fruit of a faith that is not idle. James would tell us this, that, that we have a faith that does indeed work for God, right? Faith that works and produces the fruit of righteousness. Here, here's the truth. No one is saved because they, they prayed a prayer or spoke words or just because they went into the baptistry alone and were dunked under the waters. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, receiving the Spirit of God as a seal and sign that we are one of his own. He will persevere his children. It's a promise uh, we find in the New Covenant declaration of Ezekiel 36, 27, is that God will cause us to walk in his ways and obey his statutes and commands. That's the power of the spirit within us. Embrace again these words of scripture. Verse six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This statement, family, should bring joy and a broad smile across our face. We have faith in the unshakable promises of God. No matter the headlines of the day, we have the promise of completion by remaining, right? It happens when we remain, or we use this word, abide in Christ. Those who depart, depart from Christ, First John would say, they were never among us. They, we could use this word, they, if they depart, they were just hypocrites, they were fakers, they were actors, because the true children of God who have the true spirit of God, they will see the completion of the work of Christ in their life. What's the third thing? Where, where is your joy? The third thing that we have joy in is, is joy in the commission of the gospel. 
This gets at the heart of purpose, right? Have you asked that question? What in the world is my purpose in life? What on earth am I here for? What am I supposed to do? We, we hear this phrase, especially among the youth, right? I want to be a part of something. I want to be a part of a movement and change for good. If you're a follower of Christ, we are. We are a part of something. We are a part of a movement for good. We are commissioned for the greatest work in history. Did you hear that? We are commissioned for the greatest work in history. We are on God's redeemed team, aren't we? 2 Corinthians 5 talks all about that, that we are reconcilers with Christ, bringing a message of reconciliation to the world. Verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers, right? Partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, so when he's in jail and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, right? The gospel ministry, the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you feel the warm heart of Paul towards this church in knowing I have partners in the game. I have men and women who who have my back, who put up the finances to support the ministry, to help the church, to see the mission of God continue to go forth, the kingdom of God to expand within enemy territory. And this time in the Roman Empire, the kingdom of God is still expanding into enemy territory. God's will and power will not be thwarted. It will not be overcome. Jesus has secured the victory for us. And we are on that team. That's our purpose, that we are proclaimers. We continue to go out and proclaim this good news about Jesus that we have. That God is saving sinners and reconciling them to himself through the work of his son. That's the message that we have. Team sports were were a major positive mark in my teenage years. I was a part of the football team at my high school. The memories of purpose, hard work, partnership, and meeting goals helped elevate my attitude on life and gave me joy and happiness. And this pales in comparison to the joy I have found in being part of the local church. But it serves as an illustration of the practical happiness and joy that we find in being part of something that will bring about good. And this is the greatest something that we can be a part of in our whole lives, which is the the movement of God's people in proclaiming the gospel into the darkness. It's the joy in striving together as one church to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the lost world. The great commission call of Christ upon our individual lives and in partnership together in in mission abroad, so local and global. Paul reflects toward the end of of this letter. He says this in in chapter 4, verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, notice this, except you only commissioned with Paul, committed to the mission that Jesus had set before them, brought Paul great joy where he could rejoice in the Lord always, and I believe it brought this church great joy where they could rejoice in the Lord 
always. We can rejoice together because God has set forth a great purpose in our life to proclaim the gospel, to be on mission with him. Number four, where is your joy? We find joy in the conclusion of righteousness, of our righteousness that was purchased by Jesus. This is going to expand on the idea of joy in the completion of grace that we spoke about earlier when we were going through verse 6. Toward the great conclusion of righteousness. We, we call this in, in theological or doctrinal terms, we call this our glorification per, or perfection in Jesus. Paul gives the outcome of continuing in the Christian life and not just giving up when it becomes difficult. And if we're honest, Paul had every reason to give up. Paul had health problems. He talks about some sort of thorn that he had in his flesh. We don't know what that was. Could be a struggle with sin. It could have been a health problem that he prayed for, but the Lord would not remove it because in his weakness, the Lord was magnified and glorified. Right? Paul had every reason to give up over that health problem or sin problem. Paul had relational problems, didn't he? He was probably kind of a difficult guy to get along with. He broke fellowship with John Mark and Barnabas. He had relational problems. Paul had legal problems, didn't he? He spent a lot of time in jail. He, he, he took a lot of whippings for the gospel. He could have thrown in the towel and quit, but he didn't. He kept persevering and advancing in his calling. He encourages the Philippians and us. This is a letter that is timeless, that the conclusion of righteousness is worth it. Paul knew this. What is awaiting us at the end of all things is worth it. We should have joy as we look toward our spiritual growth, which prepares us for the coming day of the Lord. That's what Paul's setting out in front of the Philippians here. He's saying, hey, it may be tough right now, your joy may be impacted, but continue to look forward because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Verses 9 and 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Here it is. He says this. So that you, right? What is the result of that? That's what that phrase is there. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be, another result, be pure and blameless for what? The day of Christ. What does that mean? Christ is coming back. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, right? That's, that's our point, is we're joy in, in the promise of concluding in righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When I spoke of the completion of grace earlier, it is not that we are robots controlled by God, rather that through the ups and downs of life, God is refining and purifying us in order to prepare us for the second coming of Jesus, for our glorification, so that we may be able, he says here, to, to discern and approve of what is excellent and pure, so that we may not be stained by the idols of this world, by the desires of our flesh. The reality is this. I want you to hear this, family. The reality is this, that Jesus has already won for us a righteous standing before God. We have it. We call that the doctrine of justification. 
Or we could say our not guilty status. If we were standing before a judge, Jesus Christ, through his works, he has declared us not guilty. And we've received that when we place our faith, confidence, and trust in the work of Jesus. And when we declare that publicly, professing Jesus as the Christ when we enter into the waters of baptism. We have this already, and God's plan and desire for us is now, if we have this righteous standing before God through Christ, not through our own work, God's plan and desire for us is to do this, to grow into the righteous standing that we have already obtained through the work of Jesus. I want to illustrate this for you. When I was a boy, my family went through a lot of financial ups and downs. My dad was in construction, and if any of you guys have been in construction, you know, you know, the high times are high and the low times are low. It's all dependent on the economy and the building and all that stuff. So we had great financial highs, I remember as a kid, and we had times where we were digging in the dumpster. I know it's hard to believe, but I was a big kid, <laughs> and I grew fast. I can remember my mom taking us school shopping as summer break was winding down. And I remember a particular year when my mom took my brothers and I to the, to the nice department store, okay? I've, I grew up in Southern California. We went to, I'll never forget this, we went to Bullock's department store. I know they don't have those out there, but we went like all the way down into Los Angeles. We're going to Bullock's. The only thing I could liken this to is like, we're not going to the Jefferson Mall this year. Mama's taking us to Oxmoor, right? Mama's taking us up to Oxmoor Mall instead of Jefferson Mall. So we don't have to worry about dodging bullets or anything like that at the Jefferson Mall. And my mom bought me all name brand Guess. Remember that brand Guess? I don't even know if Guess is around anymore. It had a big question mark on it. My mom bought me all name brand Guess t-shirts and Guess jeans. But I remember my mom purposefully buying them a little bit too big for me. And I told her, I was like, Mom, these are too big. What did she say? She said, you'll grow into them. She wasn't going to buy me something that I was going to outgrow. Because, I mean, I was, you know, every month, inches and inches this way, if you get my drift. You see, I owned these nice new threads. They were mine. I had them. And I was wearing them because... I didn't want to leave that new guest t-shirt in the chest of drawers in my room. I'm wearing them out for everyone to see. But, the, but they were a little too baggy. But what? That was taken care of soon as I grew into what was already given to me. What I was already clothed in. This gift of nice clothes from my mother. You see, this is what the righteousness of Jesus is like. It's like those nice new threads that mama bought me back in the day. I owned them, I had them, I wore them, but I was also what? Growing into them. I was filling them out. That was the goal and the conclusion. We have nice new threads or clothes in Jesus. We're clothed in his righteousness. Even when we come to him sloppy and messed up, he gives us new clothes. And, and on our own, we can never live up to the righteousness of Jesus. Instead, it is given to us as a free gift of his grace. But we don't just wear baggy clothes, we grow into them. That's the expectation of Jesus' followers, that we would grow into these clothes that he has given us. We grow in love 
more and more, as Paul says here, and knowledge and discernment so that we may approve, Paul says, what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, outfitted, right? Fitted with the right clothes, with righteousness for when? For the coming day of Christ Jesus. Filled with his fruit for his glory. We take hold of, of the very promise of Jesus when he says this, Luke 12, 32, he says this. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Those are powerful words. Where is your joy? We have four reasons why Christians should be the most joyful people in all of the world. We have partners and friends and family in the fellowship of believers. We have faith in a, in a promise upheld by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus raised from the dead. We have that kind of confidence in the promises of Jesus. We have purpose and joy in the commission of spreading the gospel right here in our community and all around the world as we partner together in, in, in the giving, the generous giving of our finances to see the gospel go through all the earth. And we have joy in looking forward to spiritual growth toward the conclusion of righteousness and this, family. We have joy in the soon return of Jesus Christ in which he has promised to make all things new. Amen.